0: rights, what we think we deserve, what we should get. And, and even though some of this might be entirely correct and, and legally uh, justifiable, is Paul's been arguing about limiting what we think we deserve for the greater good of the community, for the greater good of those who have unique uh, needs. Uh, specifically, Paul's been dealing with salvation. But as I've been studying through this, is this this topic has just been stuck in my mind, and, and then in our men's group, and then in our young adult Bible study, and then even at our board meeting, we kept going back to just how much culture can impact the way in which we think, uh, individually, corporately as a church, And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of what's happening in culture, what are the things that are being taught, what ideologies are being pushed forward, and what things are we accepting as just this is a normal part of the narrative of our life now that maybe isn't consistent with Scripture. And and this topic that's been on my mind just over and over and continues to pop up is this narrative of individualism. We just, in our culture, we're so consumed with what I deserve, what I have worked for, what I've earned, what I think I should get to do. And, and like I mentioned last week, is as long as there's this small caveat, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I should have the freedom to do whatever I want. And of course, we know Scripture teaches us something uh, very different, and if you've been uh, with us in person or or online with us the last number of weeks, you've seen that Paul is trying to say over and over and over that that's not a biblical concept. But that actually even when we do have all the rights in front of us and we should be able to do things, sometimes we need to step back from those, limit what we think we deserve for the sake of our brother or our sister. The reality is, is our spiritual journeys are exactly that. They're long journeys. And they take time to mature and to grow. And our role, your role as a committed follower of Jesus is to come alongside others and to help disciple and nurture them. And to do that means that we will have to give up some things that we think we deserve or that we have earned so that we can help others mature in their faith. And as we help others mature in their faith, our own faith matures. I've said this before, but the reality of a really, really healthy and good discipling relationship is where you're not sure who's discipling the other person. You just meet together, you pray together, you study scripture together, you talk together, and and one of you thinks, man, I'm really glad for this person in my life who's helping me mature, and the other person is thinking the exact same thing. Just because you've been a Christian for a long time or a short time, just because you are advanced in age or because you're younger, uh, none of those things really matter when it comes to our spiritual journey. It's about gathering together. So uh, I don't want to spend too much time in in the preparation of what we're going to read here because last week I spent probably way too much time there. But this reminder for us, Paul has said, I have all of these rights in front of me as an apostle, as someone who has ministered to you and brought you the the message of the gospel. I have all of these rights in front of me, but he's been arguing about how if that becomes the focus, then we're missing the whole point. And so as we read from verses 15 to the end of chapter 9 here, I don't want you to get hung up on the details as much as the overall picture of what Paul's trying to say. We will deal with the details, of course, but if if sometimes we get lost in those details and we lose sight of everything. We forget what the point of the text says and so we're going to remind ourselves of that. For us to be mature in our faith probably means this, is that we should and often need to give up our rights for the sake of others. The more we think about ourselves, the less spiritually mature we probably are. And the more we consider, how can I help and serve and care for my fellow brothers and sisters in the church? And how can I reach out to the community? And what can I give up so that others can get? If that becomes our focus, then we're starting to mature in our faith. That's what Paul's been teaching us. That's what Paul is going to say to us. Now, I just need to remind you just as we start, He's not arguing that any of these rights are bad. All of them that he goes through in the lists that we've been dealing with are good, and and he is worthy of these things. And he's not trying to argue that we should erase and put away all of them. He's simply trying to say, step back and consider is this something I should do? Is this something that I should step forward in, or do I need to step back? So let's read together. These verses, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. Paul writes this, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There's a lot of stuff in there. And we're going to look at three kind of paragraphs. At least if you have the ESV, that'll make more sense. Clearly, some of the other translations break it up a little bit differently. But we're going to primarily focus on three different thoughts within these paragraphs. Paul begins by saying that even though he has these rights, right? And we've listed them all in the previous weeks. And none of them are bad or wrong in of themselves. He did not use any of them. But he's making a clarification now, right? So I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He's not saying, I have done, I haven't used any of these rights, and you owe them to me, so now pay up. That's not what he's saying. He's not trying to manipulate them into going, you should have, but you didn't, so I deserve. That's the exact opposite of the flow of the narrative of what he's saying here. And again, we need to notice that flow of thought so that we understand and interpret things correctly. He has no need of these rights, and so he chose not to accept them. And to accept them after the fact, even though he didn't need them, would only show his own selfishness. And so he's trying to show, I'm not trying to do that. But then in these next few verses in this first paragraph, there appears to be something that people use as a a place to say that there's contradiction here. What Paul is saying here is something that he is against elsewhere. And so again, what we need to do is whenever we come to a place in Scripture where it seems like one thing contradicts another, we need to slow down. We need to go back to the text of what we're reading, the the entire context of it, we need to go to the other passage, we need to read that, and we need to find some resolution there, because as Ernie mentioned, God's Word hasn't changed. We believe God's Word is completely true, fully inspired of the Holy Spirit, and that there are no mistakes in it. So if we find some kind of contradiction or mistake or error, it's usually, not usually, it's always our own issue, something that we have misinterpreted. So Paul says this strange statement, um... For if I preach the gospel that gives me no, oh, pardon me, back it up a little. Second half of 15, I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my grounds for boasting. It's a very strange sentence, isn't it? And I think when you read it, you should stop and go, this is weird. Galatians 6.14 is the passage people often use. that says this, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In Galatians, Paul's whole argument is I got nothing to boast in because I, ha- I-, I didn't earn salvation. I don't get it because of my righteousness or my good works. The only thing worth boasting in is the cross of Christ because that's where salvation was complete. And then here, it seems to be some kind of a contradiction in that. So which is it? Well, Frank Thielman writes it this way. He says, Paul uses this word, this word boasting, not in a usual sense of pride that steals glory from God, but rather as expressing a rightful sense of joy and fulfillment in what God has done through him. So let me try and explain it more this way. Is if you ever built something or, or, well, let's just use that as an example. You built something where you looked back at it and you went, man, I think I did a pretty good job, like I'm happy with how that turned out. Well, there's two ways we can interpret that. One is if we're trying to steal God's glory for the sake of what we have done and gone, man, I am awesome. That's a problem. But if we're looking at something and finding fulfillment and joy in the work and the duty in the tasks that God has given us and said, I did my best, I was obedient and I gave everything that I had to that. And for that, I can lay my head on my pillow tonight and go to sleep knowing I've done right. That's okay. And that's good. Just this last week, one of our friends was promoted uh, to become a lieutenant in his fire department and I said to him, Jordan, I am proud of you. Well, that pride that I had in him wasn't stealing God's glory and placing it for himself or myself. It was simply my uh, admonition to him by saying, you worked hard and you have been a man of character and integrity and they've seen that and I'm proud of what you have done. That's good. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is trying to get at here He's not stealing glory from God. And you see that in the following verses. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right. Is as he's going through this, he's simply saying this. is I had no need to use that right. And so rather than put any kind of extra burden or a financial responsibility on the church to help me. I didn't need it. And so it was my honor and my pleasure to be able to provide that for you so that nothing could hinder the way of the gospel. But Paul is proud of that fact because he looks back and he goes, I didn't have to take from. There's there's nothing inherently wrong with that because Paul's not going, because of that you came to faith in Christ he understands that no the, the only reason they came to faith in Christ was because the holy spirit had put it on their heart that the holy spirit convicted them and revealed in their need of him and in grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ they came to salvation paul was just a vessel in that and he looks back on that by saying i did not have to charge you anything for it and i'm so thankful for that it was my pleasure to be able to do that for you. Some have uh, misunderstood this, and, and there's a theology out there that says this. It's called charismatic poverty. Basically, it means that if one really trusted in God, one would go out with nothing and completely rely on God to supply every single one of his needs. And that's one of those moments of where you take a truth and you take it to the extreme and you ignore everything else that the scripture says about this. Should we trust God for everything? Absolutely we should. Can God do anything in any situation? Absolutely we should. But has God called you to be a good steward of what he has given to you? And I don't just mean materially. But your ability to reason, your ability to provide for your family, all of those things, you are called to work hard and to be obedient. And for us to sit there and go, so I'm just going to go out with nothing. No preparedness. I'm not going to study. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go out and God's just going to take care of me and do everything. It's just us being lazy and then trying to make it sound spiritual by going, I'm just fully trusting in God. Now, there are moments where God is going to ask you to do some very difficult things where you're going to have to step out in faith where you're like, I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm not sure how this is going to play out. But in my experience, more often than not, and I think this is good, is God works in the ordinary and perhaps even in the mundane. Is that God uses his people to encourage us and to bless us and to help us. Sometimes there's these big miraculous things that happen where, praise the Lord, God revealed himself in this one way and I had no idea how it was going to work or what was going to happen. But most of the time that same sentence is said, but it's one of God's faithful sons or daughters that stepped forward and met a need, helped in in a certain area. And that's what Paul's dealing with here, is he as a tent maker was able to provide for himself so that he had no needs. So he said to the church, I don't want to take anything from you. I don't want to distract from the truth of the gospel. But like we said last week, then later on in in this book, in Timothy and other places, he then says, you do as a church, you do need to care for and to honor and exalt and materially provide for those who teach and preach to you because it is your duty. So he's not arguing against this. He's not trying to argue for some kind of a charismatic poverty. That goes against the entire flow of the narrative. He's simply trying to say to them, I am so glad that I did not need to take anything from you. And the focus could remain on the gospel. What does that mean for us? Well, what that means for us is sometimes while God is working in and through us, that might mean that Let's say, uh, I don't really know how to pick an example without picking on somebody, so I'm just going to use some generic example. If this happens to be you, that is a lucky coincidence, but that's all. Um, Let's just say you're a carpenter uh, and you've been called in to work on something uh, that needs some fixing in someone's house and you go in and you do that, is that's your job, that's your role. You have every right to be paid and you probably signed a little contract and did all those things. But sometimes God might be at work in your heart to say, don't charge for this. Gift this to that person because they have need right now and maybe you don't even know that. That's the kind of thing that's happening here and sometimes we're overwhelmed by that and sometimes we can look at this and go, you know what, in this moment materially, I don't have any needs. And so I, I can do that. But some other times we might look at this and go, I don't know how I'm going to be able to get through this because I need the, the financial uh, picture from this so that I can, and we can justify all kinds of things. But the truth of the matter is, if God is calling you to do something, be obedient, be faithful to it. And he will provide. But don't just assume that you know what God is calling you to do. Make sure you ask. Make sure you pray and and. As his spirit reveals to you, then step out in faith and be willing to. But don't over-spiritualize everything, because that never helps. All it does is it actually makes us look more arrogant. Rather, we need to sit there like Paul and go, in this sense, I do not want to place any burden upon you financially. I know that goes against everything that our culture teaches, right? Because if you have a certain degree or if you have a certain profession or if you have a certain skill, you deserve and should be paid for that. And he's not arguing against that. But he's saying there may be times, and there probably will be times, where God may be calling of you to do something at the expense of yourself for the enrichment of another. Next paragraph. This is where we move into something that again, can be very easily misunderstood and is often, there's some bad theology that comes out of this often. Uh, But the statement is shocking. For though I am free from all, verse 19, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, right? To the Gentiles I became a Gentile, and so on. He's done everything that he can. He became all things to all people. Well, I want to make a clarification here because sometimes what people do is when they read through this, they go, as long as it ends okay, how we got there doesn't matter. Right? We say the ends justify the means. Sometimes we look at it from that. Sometimes we think that's what Paul is saying is do any and everything necessary so that the end result happens a certain way. Well, I'm going to use a little uh, uh, I guess it's not really all that modern anymore, but um, a practical illustration of something that I'm doing. Anybody ever watched the TV show 24? Just me. Excellent. And my wife. Okay, nobody else. I'm not saying you should or you shouldn't. I'm just going to give you a, a, an example from this. As this TV show came out uh, a, a number of years ago, but uh uh Currently, I've been re-watching it as I'm biking downstairs, you know, because winter never seems to end and you can't go outside. Sorry, that was a little bit cynical. Um, but because I'm trying to be healthy. That's the right way to say that. Uh, I've been watching this show. So it's a, it's, it's a show about a fictional branch of the U.S. government called the Counterterrorism Unit. And so this, this, the hero in the show, this man, Jack Bauer, he is portrayed as this, he will do any and everything necessary to protect his country and his family. And that's something we can get behind. We watch this and and if you do see it, it can be just riveting and you can be like, man, like he's he will give up everything, risking to risking his own life in the process. And and it can you can get caught up in that and it can be like, yeah. But something that happens throughout, and while the show does a good job of kind of illustrating it, they end in a a bad spot as they realize that a lot of the decisions that get made in that process have some very serious ethical dilemmas. That the ends don't necessarily justify the means. Just because the end result works out the way that you want doesn't mean that you should have done it a certain way. And and while that kind of plays in the background of the show at the end, you always get to the end of that season and know it's okay because the country was saved or because this bomb didn't go off or you get the picture. And I think sometimes we view that in the sense of spirituality and we look at it in the same way and go, I'm going to do any and everything no matter what it costs so that somebody comes to faith. And when we do that, we take the focus off of the gospel, off of the message of Jesus, put it on ourselves and think that it's up to us to bring someone to salvation. I've heard sometimes where people have found themselves exaggerating about what God has done in their life to try and make it look even more appealing so that someone will come to faith. Well, we call this the health wealth prosperity movement, don't we? Is God will do this and this and this if you come to faith in him. Except scripture argues with it. Scripture is opposed to it. And even though the the maybe even the motivation of that person wanting someone to become a Christian, wanting them to come to faith sounds good. That doesn't mean that we just have license to do anything that we want. At our men's group, we just finished through the study of judges and, and one of the things that J.D. Greyer kept on uh, hearken on us was this idea of when we read through scripture and we see that God uses someone in a profound way, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person was righteous before the Lord. In fact, often it means that God was despite that person working in and through them. And that's the message of the gospel, isn't it? It's not that God uses me because I'm so capable and so skilled and so smart and don't... No, it's... He uses me despite my weaknesses. He uses me in spite of my vast amounts of failures and flaws. And so when we read Scripture, we have to read it with a sense of just because an end result happens a certain way doesn't mean that God was condoning what happened along the process. And Paul clarifies this, and you see several different brackets in this paragraph. Right? To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Clarification, though not being myself under the law. Right? He makes some of these clarifications that are important for us. And and really, we have no reason to misinterpret this text except for the fact that sometimes it's a little bit, it takes a little bit of time to really read it through and to really see what Paul is saying. Let me read to you uh, something that Jesus says in John 13. And this will parallel, and, and you'll remember this back. Jesus says this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Right? So Paul says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Jesus, who had all authority and could do anything he wanted, humbled himself and washed his disciples' feet. When the rights actually were flipped, the disciples should have been the one to wash Jesus' feet. But instead of going, this is my right and this is something you haven't done and you've ignored a, a cultural practice of something that, we, that you should be doing, he doesn't argue and fight with them over that. He goes, I'm going to serve you and I'm going to show you what it means to be a leader, a servant leader, one who cares for. Paul has somewhere along the lines, has learned this and figured this out, is that even though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all because I'm going to serve each of them so that I might win more of them. Leon Morris uh, writes it really, really beautifully. He says it this, Paul sums it all up with, I have become all things to all men. This does not mean, of course, that he acted in, sorry, that his conduct was unprincipled. In fact, on occasion, his principles led him to follow courses of action right in the teeth of strong opposition. But where there was no principle, sorry, but where no principle was at stake, he was prepared to go to extreme lengths to meet people. So what it's saying there is that for Paul, the ends didn't justify the means. He wasn't willing to give up everything but that he was looking at what areas can I give up and what areas are not necessary. You've heard me say this lots, but almost all of the New Testament letters that Paul has written, except for Philippians, are written to correct bad doctrine, bad theology, to help the church understand what is correct, what is right, how they should live. So clearly, Paul has some very heated conversations and some very direct confrontations with people. Even with uh, Peter in the book of Acts, when when he sees something that's causing disunity within the church, he stands up very strong for that because he recognizes that principle. But what he also realizes is the cultural implications and unique things that identify other groups of people, some of those have no bearing on our salvation, and so he was not going to fight about any of those things. At our board meeting on Wednesday, we talked a great deal about the challenge that that Paul's dealing with here, but the same as with us, is how do we in our culture right now hold high the truth of the Word of God and not compromise on it, and yet, on the other hand, love and want to minister to people effectively? I don't have an answer for that. I And I hope all of us try and we juggle and we balance trying to figure out how do we do both at the same time effectively. But it's just, it's not simple. How do I love someone unconditionally the way that the Father loves me and yet hold truth high? It's a challenging thing. And as we initiate conversation with people, as we enter into relationship with people, and we start to see just how messy life is, And I don't just mean for them, for us, for all of us. Life is difficult and filled with obstacles and challenges. And sometimes we're certain we know exactly what we should do. And we look back five years and go, I can't believe I made that decision. Why didn't I do this? For all of us, when we enter into a relationship with somebody, we want to share the gospel with them. It's just like Paul said in chapter 8 about meat. I have every right to eat that meat. The idol is nothing. But I'm never going to eat that meat in front of somebody who doesn't understand that because their maturity, their growth, their journey into more Christ-likeness is far more important to me than my own right and what I think I deserve. That's what Paul is teaching here. And you see that in the book of Acts. Is sometimes Paul comes into groups of people where uh, he knows he has no obligation to follow certain customs and rituals, but chooses to follow them because he realizes they have nothing to do with salvation. They have nothing to do with the gospel or with unity within the church. Sometimes when he's working with those outside of the law, those who are Gentiles who don't understand things, he, just, he didn't worry about some of the kosher food laws and some of those things, because they weren't matters of salvation. That's what Paul's trying to say, is in areas that are unimportant, he treated them as such. How many times Do we get into arguments or conversations where something seemingly very unimportant becomes the most important? I think we're all guilty of that from time to time. We have a little hobby horse or a little thing that that we've gotten excited about and that becomes far bigger than it ever should be. If you've been married before, then you understand sometimes this is how arguments work. Is all of a sudden the argument becomes about something it was never about to begin with because we got defensive, because we wanted to prove a point whatever it might be. Again, we're all guilty of those things. And Paul's trying to say, you, your rights, what you think you need, like, let those things go. As long as they don't compromise the gospel, as long as they don't go against what Scripture teaches, then don't worry too much about those things because they aren't important. Now, I do want to make one quick, I hope it's quick, rabbit trail here about this this under the law statement that he makes. Richard Pratt explains it this way. He says, under the law was Paul's terminology, his technical terminology, for people under the curse of the law because they sought justification before God through obedience to the law of Moses. Paul understood the ways of the Jews who sought to find favor with God through obedience to the law. They did not merely have the law, but they actually became the law's victims because reliance on obedience to the law always led to frustration and failure. So if you didn't catch that, is that's why Paul argues that he is not under the law. He puts himself under the law, though he himself is not under the law, that he might win those who are. Is He goes in and he shows them that in your desire to justify yourself through your own righteous works is actually what you're doing. Is You're condemning yourself and you find yourself guilty because you can't follow the law. And so with Paul's Jewish brothers, with those within his own family, he tries to show them, look, the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus did what you could not. He righteously followed the law. And then he went to the cross on your behalf and paid the penalty for your sin. He did what you could not do. And so we are not under the curse of the law any longer. We have been freed from that. Leon Morris writes it this way. He says, Paul's not making Christianity into a new law. He is affirming his commitment to the kind of life that befits the servant of God. And as far as the service allows, he says he conformed to Gentile practices so as to win Gentiles. So in the same way, but now the opposite. Is he saying, he's not creating some kind of new law. The Old Testament, that is irrelevant now. No, the Old Testament has all kinds of purpose, all kinds of meaning. And we only understand who Jesus is by what we read in the Old Testament. Paul's not trying to contradict and say there's there's an old and a new. Not at all. In fact, in Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Pratt continues. He says, Christ's law is the moral teachings of all of the scripture as taught by Christ and the apostles. So we don't try and make the Old Testament about one, almost like two entities of God. There's the Old Testament God and there's the New Testament God. And we don't really know how to, how to make peace with both of those. Is That's us making, making a dichotomy where Scripture doesn't. And so when we read these kind of sections where Paul talks about being under the law, and though he's not under the law, uh, he's under the law of God, but but actually he's under the law of Christ, is he's not trying to make this about Old Testament and New Testament. He's putting himself under the servitude of Christ. Because Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. And now we are not under the curse of the law, we are under Christ who covers us. But that doesn't mean that he relaxes and goes, ah, I can just do what I want now. I can just live however I want without repercussion or without consequence is no all through Christ and the apostles teachings they quote old testament over and over and over sometimes to help us realize that they misunderstood it and they needed to understand it more clearly and sometimes to show them that these old testament laws and things have immense amounts of purpose and value for them I've said this before but but many scholars when you read through Romans and when you study through it, is many scholars talk about how Paul actually elevated the life of the Jewish uh, culture because all of the things that they did, whether it was kosher food laws or you know, these types of things, they all pointed back to the Old Testament law to remind them that one was going to come to fulfill those things. And so when you ate certain things or didn't eat certain things, it wasn't out of some kind of a a duty for salvation, but it was out of a remembrance that Jesus did what we could not. And so sometimes we try and make this, well, it's not about the Old Testament anymore. It's only about the new. There shouldn't be two Testaments that fight each other. There's one God. All of Scripture is one story that leads to Jesus. All right, rabbit trail over, sorry. Verse 24. These, this last little section here is, is just a really, really practical one for the Corinthians, right? So again, um, when Paul's in Athens in the book of Acts, he speaks to them kind of in their language, how they would understand them. Well, he uses another cultural example here. Uh, there's something called the biennial Ithmian. I don't know how to say that word. Uh, it's kind of like the Olympics. But it was a, every other year there was this um, Athletic competition that existed in Corinth was the host of that uh, for a long time. And so many of these people would have gone out to see the games, the boxing, the running, all these types of things. And so he uses this as just a very, very practical example. Do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it, right? Okay, now, clarification. Every analogy has its problems. They're not perfect. He's not trying to say only one person will enter heaven. Right? Like, that's clear. He's trying to say, run in such a way that you will win. So that means do your part. Work hard at it. He clarifies, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. If you want to win at something, it's going to cost. You are going to have to discipline yourself. This is why I could never be a professional athlete. I love food too much. I have made a decision right? And you hear about some of the the diets and some of the exercise routines of some people who are professional athletes, and you just look at it, and you just marvel and go, how do they have so much dedication? It's very simple, because they think the prize is worth it. We as Christians should look at this a little bit different, I think. Any prize that we deem is, is worthy of it, we will put in the effort. And Paul says, look, they are fighting for, for some kind of a wreath that's just going to like wither and turn into nothing. It has no lasting significance. Well, there's really no difference in our culture now, is, is there? How many people are working excessively hard to acquire for themselves more wealth, more possessions, more stuff that is not going to last? Jesus says, do not acquire for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, right? Like everything is temporal here is he saying, you, they're, they're fighting and, and disciplining themselves for this little, little perishable wreath that has no value. We are fighting for an imperishable one. So when you hear about people who stand strong in their faith amidst difficulty and persecution and opposition and ultimately give their life and you go, man, like that's crazy. I don't know if I would have that kind of faith. I sure hope we do. I'm not saying it's easy, but what I am saying is, do we think it's worth it? Is we will do any and everything possible if we believe something is worth it. And so Paul's saying, these athletes, this is what they've made their life goal. And he's not, and I'm not trying to speak ill of professional athletes or hobbies that we have or any of those things. I'm simply trying to say, Paul's trying to make the physical into the spiritual. Is if that's true, how much more is the spiritual? If we recognize that a life with Jesus means a life of meaning and purpose and hope and ultimately heaven with God the Father for all of eternity, then what are we going to be willing to do? Anything and everything. If I have to give my life for Jesus, I will do it. Why? Because he's worth it. So notice what he says I don't run aimlessly. No box is one beating the air, right? In other words, again, I I have purpose far beyond the here and now. And I think for all of us as Christians, we need to be reminded of that. Ernie said, uh, Easter has come and gone, but that doesn't mean the need for us to focus on the cross is gone. Right? I said this on Easter Sundays. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves how often? Every day. Every day we need to remind ourselves of the gospel and the truth of it because the world distracts us. The world and the culture around us is influencing us with how we think and how we behave, and we need to know more about this book, more about the character of God than we do about the world in which we find ourselves in. That's the only way that we're going to know what's right and what's true. Paul says it uh, this way in Romans 12, and I just want to read this to you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's the key: Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God sorry, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you want to know what God's will for your life is? You've got to transform and renew your mind. How do you do that? By submitting to the Holy Spirit and learning what the Word of God says so that we would know how to live. And so when we're fighting, we're going, I don't know what God wants me to do in this place. Have you sought the scriptures and spent time in prayer and then stepped out in faith and obedience or are you just trying to logically figure out what you think you should do? Our own wisdom, our own logic, it all fails. This is what Paul's been saying in 1 Corinthians over and over and over, right? We said it a few weeks ago is where Paul says, If you think you know things, you don't actually know what you think you know. When we come under the lordship of Christ, and when we realize this is not about me and my desires and my wants and my prizes and the things that I think I deserve, this is about serving and loving everyone who comes into our path. And so, maybe we'll say it this way, if your Christianity doesn't cost you something, then you probably don't know what Christianity is. Christianity cost Jesus his very life. For us, I think as simply as I can put it is this. And I read this from Philippians last week, is care more about others than you do about yourself. That's a hard thing though, isn't it? Right, as as a parent, when you have a child and you go, man, you can just see how selfish children are. It's, I think God, Looks down on us and says the exact same thing, we can just justify it better. Is we're so consumed with ourselves, our, with, with our own desires, our own selfish wants. Culture has taught us look out for you, you deserve to be happy you deserve this thing, you should get that thing. And we've allowed that narrative to come into our minds in a place where it's come into the church and Paul's just trying to fight and simply say, no, it's not about you, even though you may have this right and even though that right might be a good right. And sometimes you, you may deserve those things. That doesn't mean that you should always get them. And so for all of us, for all of us, may we consider looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. May we say, what will help this brother or sister? What will help them mature and what will help them grow? Then that's what I'm going to do. Because it's about their journey. It's about their faith, their maturity. And if we're called to be disciples, that means we are called to help one another. Let's pray. God, thank you for these verses here. And again, they can be easy to kind of just read over and get a little bit confused. But as we follow the narrative of the text, as we follow what Paul has been saying and what he is teaching and what he is showing us, would we recognize the value in it? Would we recognize how countercultural it is and would we see just how much we've allowed our culture around us to influence our thinking? Just because we think we deserve something, God, help us to not make that our motivation. Help us to consider how we can encourage, how we can minister to, how we can help, how we can care for, how we can love our brothers and sisters. But as we've discussed, may we do that while holding the word of God high and not compromising on what the truth of it says. May we be people that stand strong in our convictions and yet are so loving and gracious in how we minister to others. Help us to find how to balance each of the situations in our lives, each of the people that we are interacting with. Help us, as as you helped, Paul, help us to understand where we need to stand firm and what areas are not important. God, would you be at work in our minds? Would we care more about others than ourselves? Would we desire to see growth in others and not worry about what it might cost us? because we know that you are with us. We know that you will care for us. And so God, we step out in faith this morning to do whatever it is that you have called us to do in obedience. God, give us opportunities to share your love and your grace with people this week. Give us opportunities to deny our own rights so that we can elevate the rights of others. God, would you show us how to do these things? We love you. We ask that you would be at work in each of our hearts this week. Go with us now. Amen. Again, as always, thank you for joining us. It's such a pleasure to see, especially as Ernie said, it's when there's people and not just a camera to preach to. It's just encouraging for me. Though Those of you who are at home, we are so glad you are joining us as well. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you all at some point in the coming weeks again. Uh, If you would like to attend in person, please do register by Friday. Have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.